Thanks, Dr. Steve. Good morning. My name is uh, Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us at uh, the Parkway Church uh, this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to go ahead and open to Romans 9 if you haven't already done so, and, uh, and we'll just be working through this, uh, this passage together. And as you are preparing, as you are making your way to Romans 9, verses 6 through 13 this morning, I want to tell you a story about a buddy of mine in, uh, in college. And so this buddy went to a school that calls itself, uh, rather pretentiously, the University of Texas. Now, there are uh, some 37 other public universities in Texas. There are some 30 or so, uh, in addition to that, private universities in Texas. Now, you might think the reason they call themselves the University of Texas is because they are the oldest. You would be wrong. They're not the oldest university in Texas. You would think, well, then the reason is because they're the biggest. You would be wrong. Not because they're the biggest. It's because they are presumptuous. It is because they are pretentious. That's the only reason. So anyway, this guy uh, was at uh, the University of Texas, or as I like to call it, Texas University. And, uh, and he, kind of like the parable of the prodigal son, he comes to his senses. He realizes he's living in filth. And so he realizes he wants to transfer out of this school and go to the promised land. He wants to go to Texas A&M. And so, lots of Aggies, I love that. And, uh, and so he calls uh, myself and my roommate, and he says, hey, I want to transfer out of Texas University and into A&M. And, uh, and so we said, welcome home. We will gladly welcome you with open arms. And he said, can I live with you guys? Now, the problem was uh, my roommate and I had just been in a situation where we had uh, uh, each been sharing rooms with two other guys, so three guys in one bedroom, and so we had just moved into this apartment that was a two-bedroom apartment, and we each had our own room. And so then we began to think, who's going to share a room with this guy? And, and, and we thought, well, neither of us. We're going to go to the, the leasing office and ask if we can get a bigger apartment. And, uh, and so that's what we did. And they said, sure, we have a three-bedroom apartment that you can move into, but it's $500 a month more. And so we called back our buddy and we said, hey, if you can float the $500 a month, then, uh, then we're happy to switch. And he said, yes. And so we go and we sign uh, the paperwork and that is that. The day of the move comes and because we're college students and we don't have any money, we don't hire movers. Instead, we just call all of our friends together, and what we would do is we would just take one piece of furniture, and we would carry it down the stairs, and then carry it all the way across like the commons, and, uh, and then into our new apartment. So back and forth all day long, couches and mattresses and, uh, and, and beds and uh, dresser drawers and desks and all of these sorts of things, and it just took us all day long, and we were absolutely exhausted by about 5 p.m. Not only were we exhausted, but we were also kind of worried uh, because our buddy hadn't shown up yet. He was supposed to be there at noon. That was the plan. And, uh, and so we called him and said, hey, where are you? And he said, oh, about that. I decided not to transfer. And we said, great. You probably should have told us that. I was, as uh, the British might say, a little put out. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, I never spoke to the guy again. I literally never talked to him again. I don't even think I ever ran into him again at uh, mutual friends' parties or anything like that. He was dead to me. This guy had made a promise, and uh, the fact that he broke his promise had cost uh, my roommate and, uh, and myself. Now, every one of us in this room have, have broken promises on some level. Right? Maybe you didn't leave your friends in college high and dry and stick them with 500 extra dollars a month uh, worth of rent or something like that. But all of us, to some degree, uh, have uh, failed. Our words have failed. Our promises have failed. None of us, even the most trustworthy person in this room, is not perfectly trustworthy. But God is. God's Word has never failed. He has never broken a single promise. And that's the point of our passage this morning. Romans 9, in particular, the verses that we'll talk about today and the verses that we'll talk about next week, uh, is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. We will be dealing with, uh, with concepts like predestination and election, but this, that's not ultimately what this passage is about. What it's ultimately about is this, can God be trusted? 
Is God faithful? Is God trustworthy? Can God be trusted when it comes to the promises that He has made? These massive promises that He's made to us, promises like, I will love you and I will save you. These aren't little promises, although even if God was unfaithful to little promises, that would be a big problem for you and I, but these are huge. These are massive. These are life-altering promises. These are the promises that our, our, our very lives are tethered to and founded upon. So yes, we're going to be talking about predestination. We're going to be talking about election, but I don't want us in the midst of this to get distracted. Don't miss the forest for the trees. This is ultimately about our hope and the certainty and assurance of our hope, the guarantee of God's promises, whether or not God can be trusted. Is God faithful? So nothing could be more profound or practical or pertinent than answering these questions. So I want to pray for us, and then we will uh, dive in uh, together. As we begin, as I often do, just want to ask you to pray for yourself. As Jesus is talking about this very subject in John chapter 6, as He's saying it, there are people that are grumbling among themselves, and they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then Scripture says that many of them walked away. They turned back and they no longer followed after Jesus because they were offended by the very topic that we're going to talk about this morning. So I want to ask you first just to pray for yourself that the Lord would give you a receptive heart and mind, eyes to see and ears to hear. And then would you pray that for those around us, that there would be none here today that would say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Yes, it is a hard saying, but God gives grace to His people to be able to hear. So would you pray that for us? And then lastly, would you pray for me, that the Lord would give me boldness in His Word and keep me tethered to it. So Father, we confess that this is a difficult doctrine. And it requires for you to give us hearts that have been softened to see your grace and hearts that have been humbled uh, by recognizing our sin and our desperate need of you. And so I pray that you would uh, commend that to us this morning, that you would help us because you're a good father who gives good gifts. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We'll begin in verses 6 through 7. Again, Romans 9, 6 through 7, where Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So we're going to begin with this phrase, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And we need to recognize this is not only the beginning of our passage, this is actually the key to understanding the entire passage. If you can get why Paul says it's not as though the Word of God has failed, you will understand what he's doing here in this particular section of the text. This is the key to understanding this entire chapter, and indeed the entire section of Romans 9 through 11. If God's Word has failed we should have just slept in this morning. If God's Word has failed, then why in the world would we spend all of our time singing about God's Word and preaching God's Word and listening to God's Word and gathering around God's Word? It is of no use to us if God's Word is fallible, if God's Word is errant. So why would Paul bring this up? Why might it seem, if you've been following uh, in uh, Romans 8 and in 9, why would it seem potentially like the Word of God has failed? Well, we began talking about it last week, that Paul is experiencing what he calls unceasing, great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Why was he experiencing these things? Because the majority of his fellow Jews were not believing And this is a massive theological and pastoral problem for Paul because Israel was God's covenant nation. Throughout the Old Testament, they were called elect, they were called chosen, and yet the vast majority of Jewish men and women in Paul's day were rejecting the Messiah. They were rejecting her very Savior. They were rejecting her very King. So you might be able to kind of connect the dots and see already how this question develops. If Israel was elect, if Israel was chosen, if they were the covenant nation, 
and yet they stand condemned in rejecting Christ, does that mean that God's Word has failed? All of God's promises that He gave to Israel, does that mean that those promises have simply fallen short? Can God be trusted? Has God's promises to Israel been broken? Have the elect been cut off? That's the purpose of this question And the answer is actually going to stretch, as I said, not uh, merely into Romans 9, but into uh, all the way through uh, 11. So for three chapters, Paul is going to be beating uh, this drum. Look at uh, how chapter 11 begins, verses 1 through 2. I ask then, has God rejected His people? He's asking the same questions. His answer there, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. So we'll see this answer stretch out over the next uh, few uh, chapters and thus uh, for Parkway over the next few weeks as we unpack this. But let's go back to Romans 9, which is our passage for today, and see how he begins to answer this question. He says that God's Word, God's promises haven't failed but, and here's the key thing, but they have been misunderstood. He says, how do we know that God's Word or God's promises haven't failed? They haven't faltered? Here's his answer. Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's the short answer. We'll spend all of our time today unpacking what he means by that, but that's the answer. How do we know that God's Word or promises haven't failed? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, God's promises to Israel haven't failed if God never promised that every single individual Israelite would be saved. That's the point. God's promises to Israel thus depend upon our identifying Israel correctly. And you might think that that would be a very easy thing to do from Scripture, to answer the question, who is Israel? And yet a whole lot of blood and a whole lot of ink has been spilt uh, answering that very question over the past few millennia. In the first century, in general, Jews believed, they, they viewed Jewish identity as being tethered to their ethnicity. They would answer the question, who is a Jew, on the basis of genealogical descent. I'm descended from someone who's descended from someone who's descended from someone who is descended from Abraham. And what our passage today is going to say is that uh, being a Jew is not a matter of ethnicity. It is a matter of election. It's not a matter of genealogy. It's a matter of grace. It's not a matter of pedigree. It is a matter of predestination. That's the answer that we're going to see uh, today. I mentioned A&M before. I'll do it again. I do it in every sermon, not really, but sometimes I do because I'm an Aggie. So last night, uh, A&M had a uh, pretty big win versus uh, Kentucky, who was previously undefeated. And, uh, and so they had this thrilling overtime victory, literally uh, won on the very last play of the game, as you tend to do in, uh, in overtime. And, uh, and so I'm sure Ag- uh, Aggie Tim, Tim is like the most Aggie of all of the Aggies here. And so I'm sure he has visions of national championships dancing through his head. But let's be a little more realistic. And let's just say A&M just goes to a bowl game. All right. That's all I'm uh, hoping for. So A&M goes to a bowl game. And let's say just pie in the sky, they actually go to the Cotton Bowl. All right, here in, uh, in the Dallas area. And, uh, and so Tim and myself and both of our wives, all four of us went to A&M. We put on all of our uh, A&M gear and we go down to the Cotton Bowl and we knock on the gates as if you knock on gates or something. And we say, hey, let us in. We got to play the game. Are they going to let us play? No, there's a sense in which we're Aggies. There's another sense when it talks about playing football, we're not those Aggies. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. There's a sense in which a first century Jew, just by matter of ethnicity, is a Jew, but he's talking about the fact that there is this Israel within Israel. There's this spiritual body within the larger physical nation. And Paul says that God's promises of salvation and redemption were never to the larger physical body as a whole, but rather to the remnant familiar with that from the Old Testament, the spiritual Israel. God never promises throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, God never promises that every individual Jew 
would experience salvation. He never promised that every physical child of Abraham would be a spiritual child of Abraham. Instead, God's promises were to the remnant. And so in order for Paul to really expound upon this and to build this uh, uh, theology out, he's going to give two historical examples from the Old Testament. First, he's going to give the choice of Isaac over Ishmael. And then second, he's going to give the choice of Jacob over Esau. And so we're going to begin with the example of Isaac. And it says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so let's turn to verses 8 through 9 to see how he develops this. It says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of Abraham, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So if we really understand uh, what Paul is doing, we need to go back into the Old Testament context and make sure we're familiar uh, with all of the, the story uh, that we get there from Genesis. And so from Genesis, we see that Abraham, who is this, uh, not this righteous man, he's a moon worshiper from the land of Ur. Uh, he is chosen by God, simply by grace, to be in covenant to receive promises and inheritance, to be the forefather through whom Christ would come into the world. Abraham is the most important human character in all of Genesis. And God promises Abraham that his seed would be like the sand on the, sea, uh, on the, uh, the seashore or the stars in the sky, which is why now we sing that song, Father Abraham had many sons all that kind of stuff, that's the reason. It's because God has made these promises that Abraham's offspring would be vast and numerous. But here's the problem with that. Abraham is old, like really old, like wearing socks with sandals and eating your dinner at 4 p.m. sort of old. He is super duper old. Hebrews will say that he's good as dead, which sounds rude but really just means that when it comes to giving birth, he is as good as dead. Not only is Abraham super old, but his wife is super old, and his wife is barren. In fact, she's been barren her entire life, but now, according to Genesis, she's post-menopausal. It is literally, physically impossible for her to give birth. So, God was in a bit of a pickle. He's made all of these promises to Abraham, and all of these promises are dependent upon the fact that Abraham is going to have all of these children, but Abraham, Abraham can't have children, and Sarah can't have children. All of his promises are dependent on offspring. But God made this unfortunate miscalculation of kind of uh, hitching his wagon to the wrong horse, if you will. He made these promises to a man and to a woman who were too old and too barren to have kids. And so Abraham and Sarah figure out a way to kind of save the day, to save God, to preserve His promises. So what they do is Sarah gives her servant to Abraham. And Abraham goes into Abraham's servant, Hagar. And together they conceive and have a child. And they name him Ishmael. Abraham assumes that he's done God a favor. He's done this good thing by having this child uh, to whom and through whom all of God's blessings would flow. But that is not God's design. To pick up the language of Romans 9, Ishmael was a child of the flesh and not a child of promise. That was when Abraham was 86 years old. Thirteen years go by after that. And then God appears to Abraham and promises a son. Not another son through Hagar. He promises a son specifically through Sarah. That's what's happening in this passage. In order to understand what Paul is doing here in alluding back and quoting back this language of Genesis, you need to understand that particular context. So God appears to this 99-year-old man and this 90-year-old wife who's been barren her entire life, and he says, I will return next year, and Sarah will give birth to a son. Now, whether that is absurd 
or cruel or whether it's gracious and kind depends entirely on whether or not God is trustworthy, on whether or not God is faithful. If He's not, that's a cruel thing to tell someone who has struggled with infertility her entire life. But if He's trustworthy, if He's faithful to His promises, this is an unbelievably gracious and merciful thing that He has done. But it seems laughable from a human perspective. In fact, the Bible says that both Abraham and Sarah laughed. Perhaps they even kept laughing, I would imagine, until the morning sickness begins. I want us to notice two things in particular about this. First, that it takes a supernatural word for the birth of Isaac. Again, Sarah was too old. She was too barren to have a child. It was literally physically impossible for her to give birth to a child. So it takes this supernatural Word of God. God speaks into existence that which does not exist. We see that same sort of language in Romans 4.17 where Paul writes, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So this birth of Isaac becomes for us this pattern, this parable, this paradigm for our birth into the kingdom of God, into the family of God. It takes a supernatural birth for any child of God to be born. Not natural physical birth, but what the Bible would call rebirth, regeneration, to be born again. You're not born into the church. You're reborn into the church. No one can claim I've always been a Christian or my parents were Christians. That's not at the heart of it. That's not at the root of it. That's not the reason that you and I are Christians. You don't get in on the basis of the grandfather clause or something like that. As God spoke life into existence with creation, as God speaks life into creation in a barren and sterile womb, So God speaks life into creation in your heart and my heart that causes us to have faith in Jesus. That's the first thing to notice. The second and the more important thing to note is how this illustration that he gives demonstrates the point of the passage, that the Word of God hasn't failed, that God had made promises to Abraham's offspring, and yet here is an example of an offspring of Abraham to whom the promises do not go. Ishmael was descended from Abraham. In fact, he was the firstborn, yet he was not chosen. He was not counted in God's covenant with Abraham. Ishmael was a son in some sense, but not in this other sense. Isaac was the son of promise, and God chose Isaac over Ishmael. So you can see how this point proves the point of the passage Simply being a son of Abraham doesn't make you an heir of the promises. That God's word to Israel hasn't failed because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel as not all who are descended from Abraham are a son of Abraham, son of promise. But we might object at this point. We might say, yes, but the reason that Ishmael was rejected was because he was an illegitimate heir. Hagar really wasn't uh, Abraham's original wife, and so maybe that's the reason that he was rejected. Or maybe the reason that he was rejected is because there's this 13-year period between the time when he is born and this promise is made, and so maybe he had kind of defiled or disqualified himself somehow. That leads us to the second illustration of the principle in verses 10 through 12. Paul writes, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So this first illustration that's going to prove that the word of God hasn't failed involved Isaac and Ishmael. The second example that he gives is going to actually involve the very next generation. So Isaac himself, the son of the promise, Isaac himself has two sons, Jacob and Esau. 
they also re- represent examples of this principle that he is expounding in this passage. Both examples are going to share some similarities. Both examples are going to be sort of this reversal of cultural expectation in, uh, in a, a number of ancient Near Eastern cultures, including Israel. Most of those cultures practice what's called primogenitor, uh, which is when the eldest, when the firstborn, would receive the overwhelming majority of the inheritance, and all of the other children would just receive some sorts of gifts or something like that. But we see there is this reversal where in both of these cases, the second-born child receives the promises and the blessings over uh, the other. And so both of these examples are going to upend these expectations, uh, and yet both of these are also going to highlight for us the point of, of the passage, which is that God's Word hasn't failed because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. But here's what's important is that in a lot of ways, the Jacob and Esau narrative actually demonstrates this principle better. In other words, the choice of Jacob over Esau is not just another example. He could be doing that. He could just simply give, let me give you one example, let me give you a second example. That's not what he does. It's not just another example. It's actually a better example of the principle that he is expounding in this passage. How so? Well, at least two different ways... Two different ways actually show that the example of Jacob over Esau is a better example than the example of uh, Ishmael and Isaac. The first way, the first way that this is better, well, Jacob and Esau share the same birth date. We've mentioned it before. There are 14 years between the birth of Ishmael and the birth of Isaac. So we might naturally think that that was the reason that Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Maybe Ishmael had disqualified himself or defiled himself. Maybe he was always giving Isaac wet willies or doing that whole stop hitting yourself thing. Maybe he's just really bad, and that's the reason that he was rejected, and Isaac was really good, and that's the reason that he was accepted. The problem with that is that Jacob and Esau were twins. They were born, uh, for all intents and purposes, at the exact same moment. There's no time in their life for Esau to defile himself or to disqualify himself. So that can't be the reason that God chooses one or the other. The second reason that this is a better example is Jacob and Esau share the same mother. In hearing the account of Isaac and Ishmael, you might think that the primary difference between the two, the reason that Isaac was chosen and not Ishmael, is because Ishmael was this illegitimate child, the child of someone who wasn't actually Abraham's wife. You might think that's the reason. Not only was she uh, this servant and not uh, Abraham's original wife, but she was a foreigner. She was an Egyptian. Maybe that was the reason, because the promises had to be of this particular familial line. But Jacob and Esau have the same mother. So that can't be the explanation. You see what Paul's doing in giving this other example? He's peeling away any and every one of our man-centered explanations or justifications for why God would choose one over the other until the only explanation that's left is election, which is the only explanation that actually explains God's theological rationale. In other words, you might misunderstand why Isaac was chosen over Ishmael, so he gives us this other example, this better example to make it crystal clear. He's minimizing all the distinctions between the two children. They not only have the same father, which was true of Isaac and Ishmael, but the same mother. In fact, as twins, they're formed from the same procreative act. Yet the younger son was chosen over the older. So why were the expectations reversed? Why was Isaac chosen and not Ishmael, Jacob and not Esau? Paul could have just stopped right there. He could have just simply given this example. He could have just simply mentioned the promise that the older will serve the younger and made his point. The fact, the very fact that God chose Isaac over Ishmael, the very fact that God chose Jacob and not Esau proves his point already. God's word hasn't failed because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He could have stopped right there, and yet he doesn't stop right there. Instead, this intervening material is going to give us a justification. It's going to give us an explanation. It's going to clarify for us because there is this natural sense in which we are naturally inclined to misunderstand why God chooses one over the other. 
And so he's going to give this intervening material to show, to highlight for us the reason that God chooses one over the other so that we're left with no explanation other than the true explanation, which is the doctrine of election. So you might imagine, we talked about this before, you might imagine that Jacob was chosen over Esau because Esau was a bad guy. Again, maybe he was mean to Jacob or he disrespected his parents or something like that. Or maybe God rejected him because of that whole uh, red stew incident and selling of his birthright, if you remember that account. Maybe that's the reason. In fact, if you're reading Jewish tradition, this is the way that Jews typically, traditionally uh, understood the reason that Esau was chosen and, uh, I'm sorry, that Esau was rejected and, uh, and Jacob was chosen. Consider the, the non-canonical, what's called pseudepigraphal uh, book of Jewish tradition known as Jubilees. In Jubilees 35:13, again, this is Jewish tradition uh, writing around this time. Now, I love Jacob more than Esau. Listen, the way that they understood it, because he, that's Esau, has increasingly made his deeds evil, and he has no righteousness because all his ways are injustice and violence. Well, the problem with this is when, the timing of when Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. The timing is not after one has defiled themselves or disqualified himself. It's while Jacob and Esau are still in the womb. Before they were born, before they had done anything, whether good or evil, that's when the choice was made. In other words, the choice is not dependent on their deeds. The choice is not dependent on their works, whether those are past, present, or future. The problem with thinking that Esau was rejected because of his deeds is that you're then left with the logical implication that Jacob is accepted because of his deeds. And there are at least two problems with this, one theological and one personal. The personal one first, and that is if you read Genesis, you see Jacob is a hot mess, right? He is completely messed up. He lies. He cheats. He steals, he betrays his brother and his dad, he runs away from home, he prefers one wife above uh, his other wife, he prefers one son to the neglect of his other sons. He is just an absolute mess, so it doesn't even fit the historical test of reading the account. In fact, if you're just looking at the story of Jacob and Esau just from Scripture, you would actually say, Jacob is the more wicked one, Jacob is the more evil one, so that can't be the explanation. Not only is this personally confusing, but theologically it doesn't make sense uh, at all. If Jacob's deed disqualified him, or, or I'm sorry, if Jacob's deeds qualified him, then that means that God's love for us, God's acceptance of us, is based on our performance and not simply grace. We're left with the implication that Esau disqualified himself, but Israel didn't disqualify themselves, or you and I didn't disqualify ourselves. So rather than marvel at grace, we boast in our own sense of moral superiority. And that not only destroys and distorts grace, but it destroys and distorts our hope as well. How so? Well, if God loves you for something that you do, this becomes an unbelievably heavy burden for you to bear. That is a crushing weight to think that God's love for you is dependent upon you. So praise God that His choice is not dependent on works. That deeds, that our deeds or our works are not the grounds of God's choosing. Besides, it says right here in the very text that God's choice was not because of works, whether past, present, or future. But here's where this text goes in kind of a strange and wonderful direction. Throughout Romans, we've encountered the idea of works somehow commending us to God We've seen that a number of times uh, to be shot down by Paul, but in every other context where he's going to contrast works, he contrasts it with faith. So we might expect Paul to write here, not because of works, but because of faith, but he doesn't say that, which is really, really interesting for us. He, work, he writes, not because of works, but because of God's call. You see, when it comes to justification, faith plays a role. But when it comes to election or God's choice, faith plays no part whatsoever. 
How could it? We've talked about this before. God's calling of us is what creates in us our faith. So how could faith be a condition for God's calling? How could faith be a condition for God's choosing when God's choosing is what causes our faith in the first place? We talked about this quite a bit as we talked about irresistible grace and we talked about regeneration in theological equipping class. As God spoke light into darkness in Genesis 1, so God speaks life into our dead hearts. He strikes a match in regeneration, and the immediate, instantaneous, certain result of that is faith and love, light and heat. That's what happens there. To say that God's choosing is based on our faith is to confuse the cause with the effect. God's choice isn't dependent on our faith. Our faith is dependent on God's choice. So if faith isn't the ground for God's choosing, then what is? We see it right here in this passage where Paul writes, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. I think we all know elections are the most contentious season in America. Everybody hates each other when it comes to uh, election time. Well, likewise, everybody hates them, each other in the church when it comes to the doctrine of theological election. No topic has probably uh, been as contentious and controversial in the history of the church than this topic, which is the issue of theological election, which is why we spent weeks on it, kind of unpacking it, peeling off layer by layer by layer of this doctrine so that you would have a foundation for understanding it and not merely understanding it, but embracing it and resting in it. One of my favorite hobbies in all the world is hiking. And one of my favorite places to hike is uh, I like to go to Big Bend National Park in West Texas. It's not the Alps. It's not the Rockies or anything like that, but I love it. It's sentimental to me. And one of my favorite hikes is this hike called Emory Peak. It's the highest point uh, in the entire park. And from the top, you can see nearly 100 miles in every direction. You can see into Mexico, and you can see this, this, the, the vast expanse of Big Bend National Park. And uh, just about every single time that I've ever hiked up, as I'm hiking back down, I'll pass people who are breathless, and uh, they're on their way up, and they will ask, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? And I will say, absolutely. It is utterly breathtaking, which is ironic because the breath's already been taken away by the hike. <laughs> Well, likewise, I would say the doctrine of election, this is a hard, long, arduous hike. It might take weeks or months or years to ascend, but it's absolutely worth it. From the heights of election, you will see the scope and size of God's glory and the grace of His sovereignty in a way that you have never seen before. So what is election? Here's a simple but helpful definition by Wayne Grudem. He says, election is an act of God before creation in which He chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. Now, that's hard. This is a hard saying. That's why John said that. This is why God chose Jacob over Esau before they were born or had done anything at all. And this is why God chose you, Christian. We call this unconditional election. What we mean by that is that there is no condition that we meet that causes God's choice of us or that influences God's choice of us. The choice that God makes of whom He will and will not save is not dependent on any condition that we meet, not because we're smarter or richer or prettier or poorer or uglier, not because of family heritage or lack thereof, not because we're of a particular ethnicity not even because of faith, past, present, or future, simply because of the doctrine of election. We talked a few weeks ago about predestination. Romans 8.29 says that those whom God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Election is predestination, if you will. Predestination, election is predestination unto life, predestination unto salvation. Before they were born or had done anything good or bad, God predestined Jacob to receive the promises. In the same way, if you love and trust Jesus, it's only because before you were born or had done anything, either good 
or bad. Indeed, according to Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, God set His love upon you, even though you were unlovable. And He said, I will love this person. I will choose this person. I will call this person to myself. I will grant this person a new heart, willing to believe, and I will justify you by grace through faith. So if you want to know why the Word of God, the promises of God will not fail, it's because they are based on God's sovereign purpose and pleasure and not dependent on you and me. God's Word cannot fail because God Himself cannot fail. God's Word cannot fail because it's made to the elect who are absolutely, utterly secure in His love, and it cannot fail because it's based on His call, which is always effective, and it cannot fail because it concerns His promises, which are guaranteed. Last verse, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is a quotation of Malachi 1. Yet again, Paul's going to reach back in the Old Testament, this time not for a particular narrative, but for a quote. He reaches back in the Old Testament, which is the only Bible that Paul had, for proof. So let's read together. Malachi 1, 2 through 3. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So in the context, what the prophet Malachi is saying is that the fact that God has not destroyed Israel is evidence of His abounding love. And as proof, He's going to contrast Edom, which is the land of Esau, with uh, Israel. And So how does this prove God's love? Well, Edom is destroyed. Look at the language it uses there. It's a wasteland, while Israel is not. What we need to understand is Israel was as wicked as the other nations. Throughout their history, they're worshiping idols. They're sacrificing their kids to demons. They're trusting in themselves. They're practicing sexual morality. And on and on we could go. In fact, there's a sense in which you could say Israel was more wicked than the other nations. Why? Because as we talked about last week, as Zach helped us see from verses 4 and 5, they had access to all of these blessings. They had the privileges of God's law and covenant and all of these sorts of things. So their rebellion is even worse. And yet, they're not utterly destroyed And Malachi says that's an evidence of his love. This is one of the most difficult and heartbreaking passages in all of Scripture. And it isn't because we get hung up on God loving Jacob. We get hung up on, we get bent out of shape about the word hate. And I get it. The idea of God hating anyone is super uncomfortable. Yet it isn't just here in Romans 9 and in Malachi 1 that we see it. Psalm 5.5. The boastful, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Given what Scripture says about God hating not merely the sin, but also the sinner, some people want to reduce the word. They want to take the word hatred, and they say it just means to love less. As when uh, Genesis says that Jacob loved Rachel, but hated Leah. Or as when Jesus says that you must hate your parents and your children and all that for the sake of the kingdom. But I think that kind of misses the point of the quotation, which isn't to emphasize God's hatred, but instead His love. Ironically, by minimizing God's hatred, we actually minimize His love because there's supposed to be this stark contrast that we see there. That's the point of Malachi. How have you loved us? That's the question that Israel is asking Malachi 1 and Romans 10 uh, Romans 9 I'm sorry are not detailed descriptions of God's hatred they are depictions and expositions of the depths and heights of God's love in the context here's what Paul means he means Jacob is chosen but Esau is not God's love rests on Jacob but God's wrath abides or remains on Esau One gets the good stuff, the other doesn't. God sets His covenantal affection and love on Jacob, and He withholds it from Esau. And why? Here's where we want to insert some sort of reason. But the reason is not because of what they had done or would do, 
not because of their faith or future faith or lack thereof, but simply in order to demonstrate God's free will in election. Now, I'm not saying that faith is irrelevant. I'm saying faith is irrelevant to election. I'm not saying faith is irrelevant to salvation. We are uh, firm proponents, and we have beat the drum of justification by faith, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, for the past few months. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but we have to ask the very biblical question, why or who believes, especially in light of what we already read in Romans. Romans 3, 9 through 12, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if no one is righteous, if no one understands, if no one seeks for God, no, not one then how does some believe? Seems like Romans 3 says that we can't, and we won't, and we don't believe. Well, election answers that question, who will believe and how they believe. Consider the following, uh, Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen to this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. But notice, which is the cause and which is the effect, being appointed to life, is what causes or enables our belief. Or consider, I alluded to it before, what Jesus says in John 6, 44, right before people say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And many go away offended. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You cannot come, you cannot believe unless you are drawn. And if you're drawn then that's an evidence of God's grace in your life, and you will surely be saved. Or consider Ephesians, which we spent uh, the bulk of last year preaching through. It begins like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And we could be here all day if we're going to just list out passage after passage after passage on this topic of election or predestination. To be saved, you must believe. But in order to believe, God must give you a new heart that's willing to believe because your old heart is absolutely worthless. It's absolutely useless. useless. It's absolutely faithless. Now, if you're following along, then something about what I've just said should seem unjust. It should seem unfair. It makes sense for us to think that God helps those who help themselves or to say that God chooses those who choose Him, but this unconditional election thing seems really unfair. It might seem to you like God is just playing this big cosmic game of duck, duck, damn or something like that. So is it unfair? Is this actually unjust of God? Next week, we're going to be considering that very question. Look at how the passage begins next week. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So don't leave this week thinking that God is unjust or unfair. We'll come back to that. But for now, I want to close with this question. Why does this matter? Why do we need all this theology stuff about predestination and election? Why can't we just love Jesus and love others? Is this really practical and applicable. So to answer this, I want to go back to the beginning really briefly. Paul began this by saying, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. We talked about why it might seem that way. Israel was God's chosen people. They were an elect people, if you will. And yet, by and large, they are not inheriting God's promises. In fact, they're rejecting Christ, and therefore they stand condemned. What's my point? Well, think back to all of the promises of Romans 8. We love them, we quote them, we crochet them on our pillows, we put bumper stickers on, we put it on our coffee mugs, we tattoo it on our body in really butchered Greek because very few of us actually know Greek. All of these great promises from Romans chapter 8, promises like Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. 
Or Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He also not how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Or Romans 8, 38-39, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love those promises. You love those promises, and you should love those promises, but those promises mean absolutely nothing if God can't be trusted to be faithful to His promises. What good is a promise if it isn't guaranteed or if the promisor isn't trustworthy? If God's promises to elect Israel fail, then what of His Word to you and me? What are the promises that He's made? If God has forsaken His promises to Israel, then what confidence can you and I have that He won't do the same, that He won't forsake His promises to us? And so it's profoundly practical for us to recognize that all of these promises are founded upon election, that God works all things together for good because, as it says, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. In other words, election is the anchor that tethers us to God's promises. So election isn't some sort of arbitrary, academic, dry, dull doctrine. It's profoundly pertinent and practical for our life and hope. You see, everything unravels if we don't understand this. Paul's primary concern for us is not that we understand the theological doctrine of election. His primary concern is that we rest in God's promises, but the only way that you and I will rest in God's promises is if we understand predestination and election. That's what Romans 9 is ultimately about the goodness, the grace, the mercy, and love of our sovereign God. Let's pray and we'll prepare for communion. Father, I thank You that You are a God who makes promises to Your people. You don't have to. You could be arbitrary as the Islamic uh, depiction of Allah is, and yet You choose to make promises and You have bound Yourself to Your Word. That Your Word does not, indeed it cannot fail, And so we're grateful. We're grateful that this morning we can rest in Your promises. And I know that the word that has been spoken this morning is hard. And it's offensive. Everything about us as Americans, we want liberty and freedom. We want self-control and autonomy. Everything about us as people, we want to rebel against Your authority. We want our own authority. And so I pray that You would help our hearts to rest in this doctrine not that we might just simply uh, have big uh, heads, but that we might have big hearts that truly rest in the fact that You are a God who is faithful and trustworthy. We pray these things because You are good and You do good, and You're good even in this doctrine. So I pray that You'd help us to see that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.